Today we tell the tale of Martin Dumillard. Who, you ask? Oh, only the most prolific serial killer you've never heard of. He doesn't not hold the record for most murders, but that's only because police couldn't find enough evidence to charge him with the hundreds of murders and missing persons he seemed to be connected to. His wife was also a real peach. So strap in, ladies and gents, because we're going all the way to France and all the way back to the 1800s. It'll be worth the ride. Trust me. Killing. Missing. Hidden. The podcast about bad things. Welcome, welcome, welcome into Killing, Missing, Hidden. The podcast about bad things. Perhaps the only true crime podcast you listen to hosted by a criminal defense attorney? We're like a unicorn in the true crime world, or a, a two-butted goat if you're a Bob's Burgers fan. Oh, and my name is Brad. Hello. Today we're covering a real hidden gem of a case. Now, I didn't get to research it quite as deeply as I would have liked, to be honest. Despite working on it for two weeks, because I managed to get the stomach flu, then follow that up with a fall off a ladder where... I think I suffered a tear to my tricep muscle. Just just writing my notes for this episode was a bit of a class in torture. But I did it for you, because I love all of you. Like a dog loves belly rubs, or a cat loves to ruin your sleep. My primary source for this episode is the book Crimson Petticoats. It's by author Ryan Green. He's a true crime author with lots and lots of titles to his name. And he's not so bad at it. I enjoy his books. I've tried to add in a little bit of extra fun bits that I found through my own research, but it wasn't quite as useful as I'm used to, sadly. All right, well, I know you're all excited to learn about this unknown serial killer of truly, truly epic proportions. So let's begin, shall we? So like I said, our story takes us back to 1855 in France. We've got a Napoleon back on the throne, and France is slowly attempting to expand her borders. It's not going too badly, either. It's a great time to be alive, if you're wealthy. If you weren't, it was basically a time where you lived hand-to-mouth, and that was if things were going well for you. Like most any other time in human history, frankly. Especially if you were a woman. I know, I'll give you a moment to get over your shock on that fact. I know history has always been quite kind to women, but we found an exception here, right? All right, so anyway, we've got a young woman in the middle of this who is found wandering the streets of Lyon looking for work. She was kind of a jack-of-all-trades, but a master of none. She could cook, she could sew, she could clean. Good enough to find a job like in a manor house, but not really skilled enough to work in, say, like a fabric factory. She was doing everything she could to find legitimate work and not have to turn to sex to survive if so many others had to during this time. And she literally was knocking on every door she could find looking for work. While she was doing this, she was getting concerned. It's getting late in the day. She had nowhere to stay. She didn't really have money for a hotel room. And then luck smiled on her. 
She ran into a kindly matronly woman who was happy to offer her spare room for the night for a pittance of a price. Our young lady was so excited to have a place to sleep that she took up the offer without hesitation. When she awoke the next morning, she was greeted warmly by her new landlord, who also happened to make breakfast fit for, well, not a queen, but, you know, maybe like a middle manager type. Regardless, you know, it was way above what, what our lady here expected. During breakfast, the two chatted, and the older woman learned that the younger woman's looking for work, and she said, well, guess what? I know somebody who's looking for a housemaid. There's this local nobleman. He he lives outside of town, but he's always going through maids because he lives so far away and people don't like being out there. And because of that, he, he pays pretty well. Would you be interested? And of course, our young lady is like, well, yeah, duh. I mean, that's what I'm here for. She probably said it a little bit more eloquently, but I'm paraphrasing. Her only challenge was she would have to find his kind of manservant who is in town looking for a replacement maid. And, you know, Leon's not a small town, so the girl's worried. But she she learns from this old matron that the man has some very distinctive features. Um, he had wild, wiry black hair that blended into an equally unkempt beard. He had this misshapen upper lip. It kind of looked like he maybe had a cleft palate or a cleft lip at one point in his life. He also walked with a noticeable hunch in his back. Frankly, it was surprising he had found employment in a house considering just how much he looked like a savage barbarian. But our young lady didn't care. She wanted a job, and this was a good job. She ran to the town square and managed to track this man down. And she approached him and said, hey, I, I understand you're looking for work. And he said, yeah, um, basically we're looking for somebody that can do some light cooking, some light cleaning, maybe some gardening. Would you be interested? He told her what they paid and she was like, I'm their boss. Let's do it. So uh, they left immediately. He, now, again, the manservant said, look, my master, he lives out in the country away from all people. So it's going to take a while to get there, roughly a day's hike, okay? And we need to be on the lookout for bandits and the like, so I'll carry your things, and you help me keep an eye out. She was fine. You know, that's great. She she felt kind of good having this giant man escort her all the way to her new home. But, you know, as they began to hike, she started thinking and thinking and thinking, and she got nervous because now she's alone in the woods with this man she's never met who's huge and could just absolutely destroy her if, if she, you know he wanted to he was like an ogre but you know as they chatted and all that she felt more at ease around him mainly because he was kind of slow. She would have to ask questions two or three different times, often in different ways to get an answer. And, you know, he he seemed like a really well-trained dog. He, you know, he was very concerned about protecting her. He made sure to help her over all the bumps in the road. And he was very, very polite and gentlemanly, despite his kind of low IQ. 
instead of worrying about the man, she then kind of became focused about her new home. You know, she hadn't asked any questions about that. She didn't know anything about where she was going to be living, the type of man she'd be working for. So she started asking lots of questions about that. And, you know, her her giant f- new friend here was happy to answer the questions. And he said, you know, it's a pretty large estate. It's got two castles, lots of other buildings surrounding it. And he said, you know, really the worst part of it is just there's so many bandits in the area that he was constantly having to chase people away who were trying to steal farm animals or break into the houses. And that's why his master had chosen him to go fetch a new maid. He knew that, you know, as a giant of a man, he could take care of himself and would do a good job protecting any women from 'er ne'er-do-wells they may come across. Soon they broke through the woods and she saw this open land full of rolling hills. And despite a landscape that went on for miles, she she didn't see any sort of castle or anything as she was promised. There was only dilapidated farmhouses and other structures like that. And so she expressed some confusion and concern, and her gentle giant just kind of nodded silently. But he kept marching like he had some place to be, and, you know, she assumed maybe he was tired and was just anxious to get home and... You know, maybe maybe this castle was closer than she thought. Maybe it was being obscured by some hills or something like that. So they kept their march up for just another few minutes before he stopped. And he kind of set her chest of belongings down on the side of the road a bit harder than she would have liked. And then he sat down as if to take a breather. And, you know, she was happy to have this opportunity to take a break. They had been hiking all morning. She was tired. Her feet were hurting. And she could only imagine how tired this man must be because even though he was big and burly, he had been carrying her chest of all her worldly possessions this entire time. Now, as he sat there and rested, you know, he kind of leaned back on his hands, admired the sun, the sky, the clouds. And then he started kind of rooting around like he was looking for something. And at first, she didn't think much of it. But then she kind of asked, you know, hey, what what you doing over there? And uh, he ignored her. And really, that didn't strike her as odd because he had ignored lots of questions she had asked during the trip, during their little hike so far. So she just kind of admired the scenery and looked around. And when she looked back over at him, he was holding a giant stick. And he was kind of testing his hand like a baseball player would a new bat. This made her a little bit nervous, of course. And then he kind of turned towards her and made eye contact with her. And all the jolliness and friendliness and politeness from his eyes were gone. He had this animalistic look. She she instantly knew what was up. He had some evil thoughts. So she leapt to her feet and tried to run to the farmhouses. She didn't know if anybody lived there, but she was praying to God that they were occupied and somebody in there may be able to keep her safe from this huge man. Now, as she dashed off, the man she was with didn't react quickly. He kind of lumbered to his feet and then bent over and pulled something out of the ditch. It was a stone. 
and kind of a big one, a mini boulder, if you will. And he, you know, kind of took a few steps towards his former ward and then uh, started pounding his giant stick against his giant rock. It was, you know, kind of a real slasher movie style style approach that he was taking here. Now, because he was so big, he moved pretty slowly. And so she was able to make some distance on him. And she kept trying to run in a path that would put lots of obstacles between him and her. But she learned that he was actually pretty daggum agile. And nothing slowed him down. He may not be fast, but nothing would trip him up. He could jump over rocks with ease. He could sidestep roots. It was easy. But still, you know, she was faster, and she continued to outdistance him. Eventually, he became frustrated and started grunting. And then she heard a really loud grunt. And shortly after this grunt came out, it was clear it was not a grunt of frustration. It was one of effort, because he had hurled that giant stone at this girl. And his aim was true. He nailed her square between the shoulder blades. She tumbled to the ground, instantly had the wind knocked out of her. She tried to stand up, but she had trouble finding her feet. And this entire time, the giant was making up ground pretty rapidly. Like any victim in a good horror movie, she's struggling to get to her feet. But she, you know, does that run, stumble, fall get up, stumble, run a little, fall again type deal. And eventually, eventually he caught up with her. She prepared herself for a massive blow to the head, but it never came. Instead, he just pulled her roughly to her feet and began kind of walking, dragging her back towards the road. Now, she tried to scream, but she was still, you know, out of breath from the blow from the giant stone. So just kind of this whimper was all she could muster. But this was enough to kind of tick off her attacker. And so he responded by putting a rope around her neck and not, not in a way to intentionally choke her. It was more like a leash, but it was a tight leash. And it was one of those that the more she resisted, the tighter it got around her neck. And he's walking back to where they were across the road and he heads into the woods and she's doing her best to keep up with him, but he's got such long strides and she's walking backwards. And so this rope keeps getting tighter and tighter and tighter around her neck. Once they get well beyond the sight of anyone who may pass by, The large man kind of pushed her against the tree, the rope still around her neck, and he smashed open her wooden chest. He dug through her belongings like he was looking for something, like he was trying to recover a lost object, you know. When he didn't find what he was looking for, though, he turned on her, and his hands searched everywhere on her body, and I mean everywhere. He then began removing her clothes, and this sparked a new fire on her. 
She began to fight viciously against her attacker. She was not going to be raped. She actually succeeded in breaking free at the modest cost of her nakedness. She was now, you know, running barefoot, facing this energy-draining cold of the early evening, and she was stumbling through this really dense, rocky, rooted terrain. She glanced back to see if, you know, this monster of a man was still going through her belongings, and oddly enough, he was, and he was folding them neatly and placing them on a bush, almost as if he had just washed them and was trying to keep them from getting wrinkled. She kind of slowed her pace at this point, thinking, well, this guy's just kind of a crazy robber. He's not a murderer. He's not a rapist. He just, he just wants my stuff. And that was a mistake, because as soon as he got done folding everything, he picked back up his giant stick and gave chase. Now, again, she had speed on him, but he could run through these woods like there was no obstacles in his path. Like, he was running on a nicely level track. She did her best to get away, but she kept tripping over stones and roots. And then, finally, she fell hard. And he quickly was on her, taking full advantage of his incredible ability to dance through this rough terrain. Once he was on her, he didn't hesitate. He brought the stick down on the back of her head, hard. Then he did it again, and again, and again. There she died, alone in the world, not even dressed. History hasn't remembered her name. She wasn't important enough in French society to be worth remembering. She was just another random young woman who meant nothing to French society. This lack of compassion for the working class is how Martin de Magyard became one of the greatest monsters in French history. Now, Martin's story really begins with his father, Pierre. He was actually some sort of minor nobleman in Hungary. But Austria wasn't a big fan of Hungary and ended up invading and so he became a wanted man because of his status. And then he kind of made things a little bit worse because he got involved in some of these let's kill the Australian nobles plots. Now, lots of his buddies were caught. They were rounded up and executed in pretty gruesome ways. But Pierre managed to sneak away disguised as a peasant. Now, even dressed as a peasant, you know, the lowest of the low in French society, he actually found work easily because he was so well-educated. And soon he was developing a reputation as a good worker, and lots of business owners really wanted him to come work for them because he was so good with numbers. He was kind of like a natural bookkeeper. But his old, you know, noble-killing ways kept finding a way to catch up with them. And so Pierre was constantly on the move. He couldn't stay in one village or one town too long. 
Now, in one of these towns, Pierre met a lovely young woman who was totally smitten with them, and the two became inseparable. During one of the times they were able to settle down, they gave birth to Martin in 1809. Three years later, they gave birth to Raymond, his younger brother. Now, Martin was a bit of a wild child, and that's probably being generous. Uh, he was very creative about finding ways to get in trouble. He was very good at thieving. He had no natural manners. And so the neighbors were kind of sick of this kid. And they were slowly getting more and more disgruntled. They were slowly thinking more and more that this kid ought to be sent to jail. When something happened, his brother... Raymond got sick and died. And this whole village at the time kind of bonded together to support the family. And all of Martin's criminal actions were forgiven. And, you know, it went from, oh, he's just a bad child to, oh, that poor thing. He doesn't know how to cope with the death of his brother. And in fairness, part of that was true. I mean, obviously that's revisionist history, but... From that point forward, whenever the name Raymond was even spoken in his presence, it was like Martin was stabbed with an icicle in the heart. He just went cold. And he slowly became more and more withdrawn and more and more sullen. Now, the politics of war continued to upset their life, and Pierre, again, had to hastily move his family several more times to avoid these Austrian forces. Their last move was to Podia. It's a city-state in northern Italy, and it was pretty well known throughout the region for being, like, mega anti-Austria. But there was a twist. About two days before Pierre and his family arrived there, Austrian forces managed to invade. They had taken over the city when they arrived. Further cementing that Pierre's only luck was bad luck, one of the officers in the Austrian army immediately recognized him. Pierre was arrested, and within a month's time, he was positively identified as one of the conspirators against the Austrian ar army and government and the nobility. Of course, when you commit such a crime, that's treason. And there's only one suitable punishment for treason, right? That's death. Now, at the time, Austria's stance on this was, you know, we're not going to do a simple beheading. We're not going to do anything along those lines. It's too kind. You were drawn and quartered if you were caught trying to kill a member of the Austrian nobility. Now, the problem was Pierre was caught in a town that was kind of small, which meant the town square was not very big. And so when they tied him to the horses to carry out this punishment, and let them go, the horses couldn't run very far. So, in kind of a gruesome episode, Pierre's 
you know, his joints become dislocated, tendons start to tear, things like that. But he's not killed by it. But that's the punishment under the law. And so the powers that be there in that town in Italy kind of conferred and called in an executioner. And he brought an axe with him. And so if the horses couldn't rip him limb for limb, the executioner would. And that's exactly what happened. All of Pierre's limbs were hacked off, and all of this was done in front of poor Martin and his mother. Now, they were not charged with anything. They were not arrested. The Austrian government knew that Pierre was the only bad guy here. But being the wife and son of such a well-known trader doesn't have very many benefits. So they were just kind of left to their own devices. And, you know, they're essentially penniless. They are in a region where they don't speak the language. They certainly have no connections. And kind of everybody hated them, you know? What you would expect. That's not shocking, right? Well, this whole experience utterly broke Martin's mom. She became just a shell of a person. She was more zombie than human, really. She couldn't mother anymore. She couldn't take care of herself anymore. And Martin decided that he had to become the head of the household. By the by, Martin's only four years old at this time. Considering how extremely young Martin was, he did an amazing job. He led his mother by the hand through the woods he just seemed to have a natural gift for navigating. He could catch small animals with ease. And kind of kind of out of routine or habit, his mother would cook these rabbits or whatever he caught. But she would never eat, and it was more like she was just going through the motions. Martin was also really good at foraging through battlefields. Whenever they came across where a skirmish had taken place. He would go through all the dead bodies and he would only pick out the things that were valuable or useful. You know, as, as winter descended, he was focused on gathering together cloaks and coats and extra clothing and socks and boots to keep him and his mother warm. He would look for army rations so they could be fed. He wasn't interested in the cool things like the swords and whatnot. He wanted the practical things. Martin kind of became feral. It was the only way he knew how to survive, I guess, instinctually. But it worked beautifully. In fact... Because of Martin, eventually he and his mother stumbled into a French military camp. And the soldiers took pity on the pair. They were kind of adopted as like the camp mascots. Like the commander of the regiment would use Martin and his mother as examples to remind his men what they were fighting for. You know, the, the French women and the French children. And it really did inspire them. Now, by this time, you know, again, Martin's mom is in this zombie-like state, so she's kind of taken in 
by what other women were there and given a lot of care and attention and all that. Martin had become very mute. He didn't speak much. He didn't try to communicate. But he was kind of well-liked. But it was really, and I know this sounds cruel, but it's really the only way to describe it. He was kind of like, you know, the regiment's dog. Um, you know, eventually the French forces were able to push forward and they didn't want to bring Martin and his mom, you know, closer to danger. So the commander sent them back uh, along the supply lines and eventually they reached another camp. And then soon thereafter, they'd be sent back to another camp and they were kind of working in reverse as the battle moved forward. They moved backwards, getting closer and closer to their homeland. They finally made it to France, and it was there that mom, Martin's mom was kind of hospitalized. Not formally, but that was effectively what had happened. I mean, it was obvious she just she was no longer an adult. She could no longer function in any meaningful way. And so the local government kind of took care of her. Martin was tended to as well, but not as closely. And he developed the habit of sleeping out in the streets or out in the woods. And again, just was kind of dog-like in his nature. He And he was taken care of. Don't get me wrong. He wasn't, you know, an abused puppy. They fed him. They clothed him. They tried to teach him things, but he just wasn't interested. And they did this until he was deemed old enough to work for a living which, of course, at these times meant he was eight years old. Now, the these villagers had been watching him as he grew up, and they realized, you know, the kid's got a knack for anything related to the woods. And so he kind of became in demand as a shepherd. A lot of farmers wanted him to watch after their flocks, and, you know, this was considered not a great job by most adults because you would spend literally months out in the wilderness. You'd have to chase down stray sheep. You'd have to ward off wolves and other predators. And you kind of had to forage for your own supplies. But Martin was great at it and he loved it. And he did it happily. Like, he loved this kind of hermit lifestyle. Now, it didn't pay very well, and it didn't. It wasn't a full-time gig. You know, once the cold months started rolling in, they don't have their sheep grazing out in the field, so the farmers only hired them during the warm months. And during the cold months, he had to kind of find odd jobs to make ends meet. And he would do anything. He had no trade skills, you know. He, he couldn't... He wasn't a carpenter. He, he, he didn't have any useful skills whatsoever other than he would work harder than anybody else. So he typically got the most backbreaking labor. And I kind of say that literally because there was an incident where he was working on a farm. He was in a barn. I think he was moving hay around. And he fell off the second story of the barn, landed square on his back, and it's believed that he broke his back. Now, the 
you know, the farmer and his wife came out and they cared for him as best they could. But Barton couldn't afford a doctor. He didn't have that kind of money. And he wasn't the sort who was content to lay in bed all day. So after like three or four days, he tries to go back to work. And he's working and the farmer's watching him and he sees him that he's in such great agony doing things. But he won't stop. And the farmer finally, for his own conscience, has to intervene and said, son, you can't keep doing this. You, you got to. I'm sorry, I can't let you work. And it was an act of compassion, but it also meant Martin wasn't making any money. So he tried to go to other farms, and when they saw, you know, how badly bent his back was, they they said, no, I'm sorry, we can't use someone like you. He eventually just couldn't find employment anywhere. And so he's his survival instincts kicked back in, and... He kind of did what you would expect. He started stealing to just get food. You know, he wasn't trying to get wealthy. He wasn't out to to snatch away the crown jewels. He just wanted food in his belly. The problem was his thieving slowly escalated and he got on the police's radar. And once they kind of began snooping around, seeing what was going on, Martin knew he had to move on to a new village. Unfortunately, this meant that he had kind of burned all his shepherding bridges. So rather than finding a new village to settle down in, he thought, I'll just keep traveling. I'll keep taking on odd jobs to get some food. Occasionally he would steal, though he tried really hard to keep his nose clean. He had learned from his mistakes that last winter, and he didn't want to repeat them because he didn't want to live that sort of life. Eventually, he stumbled into just a wonderful opportunity, working for a wealthy man known as Giard, and his job would be taking care of the animals and marking off new hunting trails. Now, the staff didn't want to hire this boy. He, he, looked, he looked like an ogre, you know. He was deformed. Uh, he had what turned out later on would be determined to be a benign tumor growing on his lip. His hair was always wild. He, he just looked like this wild child, and they were really uncertain about it but the you know the master said we're gonna hire him we're gonna try him out he's gonna be out in the fields he won't bother anybody and so they grudgingly accepted him and after a few days the butler who's kind of the head of the staff you know he was really impressed with martin because this kid just worked and worked and worked and he would literally go until the butler said that's enough you need to eat Now, Martin, of course, is not sociable in the least. So when it came time for dinner, he would take his meal, usually down at the barn or with the animals, sometimes out in the field. He was always alone. But, you know, the servants, as they saw Martin work, they became really intrigued by him, especially since he never spoke. And so they kind of eventually went to the butler and said, you know, would you invite Martin to join us for dinner? We'd really like 
to get to know him. And so the butler goes to Martin and says, hey, you know, we'd like for you to eat dinner with us inside if you're willing. Well, Martin, you know, to him, that was an order. That was not a request. So he did it even though he didn't want to. Now, of course, he didn't magically become sociable. He showed up for many of the meals, but he wouldn't make a noise. Um, in fact, the staff kind of considered it a victory if they even got Martin to smile. And while lots of the staff kind of became frustrated with his attitude, several of the younger maids were kind of enchanted by his mysterious nature. Now, look... They didn't have Tinder back then, right? So the dating pool these young women had was really small. When you're working all day cleaning a mansion and you have no free time to yourself, your dating pool are the other workers. And Martin was about the only single one there. So he kind of became a prize to be won among three or four of the maids. Marie and... Martinet was the young woman who eventually broke through Martin's tough exterior and found that he was like a Cadbury egg, you know? Lots of gooey softness inside. Martin hadn't received attention from a woman since he was like three before his mom kind of lost it. And so to have this woman, you know, shower him with affection and talk nice to him and, you know, play with his hair and things like that. He just instantly fell in love. And I mean, loved this woman. They courted each other for a spell, but eventually Martin popped the question. They got married. They're, uh, the owner of the, the manor that they worked in, Gave them a nice stipend so they could go start a life on their own. Plus, Marianne stole some silverware to supplement this little nest egg, which was a little bit of foreshadowing of things that would come. Now, these lovebirds, they paired together nicely. You know, Marianne was the brains and Martin was kind of everything else. They bought a really nice house in a fishing village and lived a very comfortable life until their nest egg started running out. So at this point, Marie Ann, she's kind of gotten used to this lifestyle. And she says, Martin, honey, you got to go out and find a job because mama ain't going back to the poorhouse. Again, it's important to remember that this was the first time since his dad died that Martin had somebody in his life who cared about him. And so his goals in life had changed from just merely surviving to now, more than anything else in the world, he wanted to make his wife happy. So when she said, you've got to go get a job, he was happy to do it. The problem was he didn't really understand how large an appetite Marie-Anne had for the good life. But he did his best. Again, he, his skill set really wasn't suited to a life of marriage, right? He's good at things like shepherding, you know, being out in the woods for a long time, taking care of animals, 
getting paid next to nothing, forging for what he needed. He realized he couldn't do that. He needed to be home with his wife. Likewise, you know, jobs as leading men on uh, hunting trails or working as a guide for people who are trying to get from one part of the world to the other. All things he were good at, all things that would take him away from his wife. So he tried his best to pick up a trade in town. Again, this was a fishing village. So that's where he went first. Most of the men were fishermen. He said he would be a fisherman. That literally lasted one day. Um, He was picked for a boat because he was so big and strong looking. But he got seasick almost instantly. And when it was time to haul in the nets and bring in their load of fish, Martin stumbled, fell into the nets ripped some of them, and basically dumped out the rest of the fish so that they could swim free. So this whole crew worked all day for almost nothing. Like I said, he was not at all welcomed back. Um, In fact, you know, he was kind of, I think it's fair to say he was blackballed in the entire fishing trade. Now for her part too, Maria Ann wasn't one of these women that just sat at home eating bonbons, demanding that her husband make all the... No, she went out, she tried to find a job too, but she was kind of in the same boat as Martin, you know? She had grown up working as a maid, and as a maid, she knew how to do lots of things, but she didn't know how to do one thing particularly well. And so she never really could find a job that she could hold down. And despite their best efforts, you know, slowly their savings were dwindling. And soon they had to start selling many of the belongings they had just to keep food on the table. And it eventually got to the point that they were facing the reality that they couldn't keep their house. Now, this flipped a switch in Martin. He kind of went back into survival mode. And even though he's widely considered kind of henpecked, He, you know, butched up, I guess you'd say, became the man of the house for a moment and said, no, here's what we're going to do. We're selling this house, okay? We're going to take the money from the sale. We're going to travel back to my old stomping grounds. We're going to buy a modest cottage there, and I'll have enough connections and friends to be able to get some sort of work. Marie Ann was down with this. So they did just that. Now, remember he had all those police searching for him because of his crimes. Enough time had passed, enough people had moved on that nobody really cared anymore about what he had done. No, You know, they, they were minor crimes anyway. No one was really interested in prosecuting him. He was still a child back then. And while he was distinctive, you know... Large size, the hunched walk, the swollen lip. Nobody really remembered him that well. In fact, those who did remember him referred to him as Raymond, his deceased brother's name. And he didn't correct him. He just kind of adopted that identity. Now, they've had this new location to live in, but their fortunes didn't really change. And this... This is when Marianne kind of started forcing her way back and as the main personality in the relationship. 
And she was becoming more and more frustrated and more and more disappointed in Martin. And she was not bashful about expressing her disappointment. And this really hurt Martin. Like, he was really, truly in love with this woman. And he wanted to do anything he could to make her happy. And so he just couldn't stand hearing what a failure he was and how, you know, how upset she was at him. So he did the one thing he knew he could do to make money. Crime. Now, rather than resorting to burglary, he went the robbery route, which is an interesting choice for such a distinctive-looking man. And maybe it sounds like a bad move, but remember, he had tried this life of crime once. It didn't go well, but he had learned from it. And so rather than attacking people head-on, you know, swinging out of the trees with a sword and and snatching away their purses. His strategy was to kind of hide in the woods. He would wait until a lone traveler would come along. And then, sort of Bigfoot style, he would hurl giant rocks at him. And he was a pretty good thrower, so, you know, he hit more often than he missed. And, you know getting a surprise conk in the head from a big old stone, that knocks out, or at least knocks down most people. So when he hit, he would run over, and he would try to steal what he could. But he quickly learned that, you know, people who are traveling the woods, and remember, these woods were known to have bandits in them, they didn't bring a lot of money. And so he kind of got frustrated and because he's doing all this work and it's not paying off, his wife's mad at him. And he had to keep on the move because the police were very aggressive in hunting down bandits. He, of course, was acting like one. And so he had to work different sections of the woods every day to stay ahead of the cops and sometimes even angry mobs. Soon he adjusted his goal. He realized, look, I'm not finding any gold or francs or whatever on these people, right? So he decided to target clothing. Why clothing? Well, first of all, he knew everybody that came through was going to have clothing on them, right? Second, he figured if he could pull off the attack and keep the clothes in decent condition, he could sell them to traveling merchants at a fair price. Plus, lots of women were not real keen on going to the police to tell a story about this big ogre of a man having attacked them and taken all their clothes and not raped them or, you know, any other atrocity being inflicted upon them. And so this approach ended up being kind of genius, His first effort at this, when he first decided to target somebody just for their clothes, he managed to get a nice dress, some nice shoes, all that, went to a traveling merchant, and he brought home a sizable amount of francs. And Marie Anne was just ecstatic with the haul. And, of course, she was like, how did you do this? Where did you get this money? And he told her, and she loved it. She loved it. You know, if this is the money he could make 
by Robin folks, then he needed to be Robin folks. So she kind of became the brains of the operation. And she started planning out a lot of how his robberies would go down. And she was good at this. She was pretty good at this. You know, she would offer advice on how best to ambush travelers. She taught them what to look for as far as really high-value clothing. Um, She would pass along to him rumors whenever wealthy people would be passing through. Heck, she would pass on rumors when even not wealthy people would be passing through, just as long as they weren't dirt poor. Whenever he damaged clothing, she would be there to clean it up, sew it together, and she would help sell a lot of it. And, you know, eventually she became more and more aggressive in how Martin was pulling off these attacks And that story at the top of our show where, you know, he recruits the young woman to come work at the manor house for his lord. That was all Marie Anne's idea. She had come up with that. And the idea behind it was you get these women who are looking for work. They'll be excited at a well-paying job. They'll pack up all their belongings. And then Martin could overpower them. And in that one robbery could get several outfits that could be sold, maybe some jewelry, maybe some other valuables. The original plan was just to rob these women, but there was the problem of Martin being identified. And so the very first time he pulled off his this scam, he ended up killing the woman so he would not be identified. And because he knew the local woodland so well... He took her body to a spot that he thought nobody would ever find her. And he was basically right. He made the mistake, though, of bloodying up too much of her clothing. And so when he brought it home, Marie Anne was kind of ticked because, you know, she could clean clothing, but she couldn't work miracles. So he learned that anything that was too covered in blood, he had to leave behind. And soon, as these murders began piling up, people were noticing that these women would be found nude, but with bits of clothing laying around them. It was always bloody clothing. And they just kind of assumed that the rest of the clothing that wasn't there was just kind of, you know, absorbed into the forest. You know, Mother Nature has a way of reclaiming things, and so they just assumed... You know, if animals had been there, maybe they had carried off the dress or the shoe or whatever. You know, they came up with explanations. Eventually, though, there were so many women that were going missing that the police called in a magistrate to the area. And he kind of became the lead detective on this case. Now, his initial theory was, we're having all these women. When we find the bodies, they're naked. Surely the motive here must be rape. It must be some sexual assault in nature. So they began, the police and the magistrate began leaning on those men who were known to be kind of what we call today sex offenders. And there was one fella in particular 
who had a really similar MO as to what the crime scenes scenes were showing. Because he would he would kidnap a woman, take her into the woods, rape her, and then beat her to death. And it was one of those things where everybody knew he was behind it. But the facts just kept showing it was impossible. For example, for that first murder, again, cops are certain he did it, magistrates certain he did it, except there's records showing he's in jail at that time. So clearly it was impossible for him to do it. Now, while many people these days believe Martin killed virtually all of his victims, this really wasn't true. And in fact, there's some evidence that suggests he only killed a small number of women. I don't know that that's true either, but it could at least be argued. Lots of his victims did escape. That's undisputed. Lots of them were ignored by police because they were nobodies. And when when the few women did have the courage to go to the police, a lot of times they would view this as an effort to create pity that they could leverage into finding a job locally. You know, they just wouldn't believe that a woman could be attacked out in the woods, even though they were finding dead bodies. Apparently, if you lived, that was reward enough. But the townsfolks kept hearing these stories and were getting frustrated because the police weren't doing anything. And, you know, these weren't just some women that were going missing. These were people's wives and daughters and sisters. And so occasionally you'd get an angry mob together and they'd go storming through the woods looking for whoever was doing this. But Martin was at home at the woods, right? And he could dash through a dense forest like my wife can navigate a target, okay? Occasionally, these mobs were helpful because they would kind of force a victim to testify. And when you've got 15 men in your office telling you to listen to what this girl has to say, even these callous police officers took that a little bit seriously. And so slowly, the local magistrate that was brought in started to develop a picture of who is behind these attacks. And he learned about the physical oddities this this man had. So he was starting to put together a picture of Martin. Now, these authorities were aware, too, that they were only learning about the failed attempts. And again, Martin didn't have a pristine batting average, but whenever he did succeed... By the time police learned of the crime, the body would be buried out in these dense woods where they couldn't find it. The goods would have been sold, and so they had no evidence to work with. And again, Martin was smart, or maybe Marie Ann was smart. They only targeted the working class girls. 
the maids and those sort. And again, these are people that society did not care about at the time. Plus, it was easy to confuse who was missing with who had gone to other towns to look for better job opportunities. So a lot of people who were, in fact, missing were never reported missing because their families believed that, oh, she must have gone a couple towns over to try to find a job. She, we had heard rumors about there being work there. There was also a problem, in, despite how unique Martin looked, a lot of the people who, or a lot of the women who survived his attacks had a hard time describing him. And it was because they would get so focused on trying to get away from this man, his facial features and his particularities kind of blurred. You know, they they just wanted to survive, which is totally understandable. And so you've got another whole category of attacks that Martin was committing that were really just written off to random ba bandit attacks. Marie Ann had also really drilled into Martin that you can't keep going back to the same fishing hole. You've got to change up where you're doing your attacks. You've got to change up how you're performing your attacks. And so what Martin would do is he'd show up in different towns, you know, all roughly within a day's distance from his home. But, you know, sometimes he would rent a horse. And he would wear some nicer clothes and he'd go into this town and he would really look like, you know, the master of a house for a nobleman. And that made it easy to recruit women because why would a bandit have a horse just to pull off a robbery? I mean, that was a big time investment. And he would always be very chivalrous, you know, if when he attracted a young maid's attention he would put her on the horse, and he would walk, he would carry her trunk, and he became better and better and better at socializing in a very deceptive way. And so people began to trust him more. He would also change up his look, his standard affair, like I described earlier, was the wild hair, the wild beard. Sometimes he'd cut his hair, sometimes he'd shave his beard. And so he was constantly changing what he could of his appearance. And all of this made it difficult for police to ever point a finger at him because the descriptions were not consistently of what people thought of as Martin. In addition, he even a few times, I, I have to note this because it just shows how much planning went into it. There were even a few occasions where he didn't, traveled to towns by foot or he didn't travel there by horse, he would actually rent a train car. And so when it was time to leave, he would tell the young woman, I've got a train car. It's just you and me rented. It's going, you know, my master's house is a ways away. This will cut down on the hike significantly. If a dude's got a train car, how are you not going to trust him, right? He has to be on the up and up if he's, can put you into that lap of luxury just for the ride to the manor house. But again, we have more and more people who are getting away and slowly the magistrate's starting to believe more and more of them. And 
I mean, it was a glacial process, but he's starting to connect the dots. But regardless, overall, this plan is working exceedingly well. And Martin was bringing in bank. He was collecting more clothing and other items than Marie Ann could fix up and sell. I mean, it was, we'll get to this in a minute, but it was impressive. One common theme among the women who reported Martin to the authorities talked about how charming he was, how polite he was, how chivalrous he was until that moment. There would always be that moment where the, he would change. It was a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde sort of deal. And they could feel it. It was that intense of a change. And they knew they were in trouble and they would run. The ones who listened to their gut, at least, who ran, would get away traditionally. There were also a lucky few who learned that if you screamed really loud for whatever reason, that always startled Martin. And so that gave them a precious few extra steps to get away. Martin would not give chase unless he was 100% confident it was just him and his victim. If there was any chance in his mind that some hunters may be nearby or they were close to farmland, he would just run away. You know, he would retreat, live to fight another day. Now, another unfortunate aspect uh, for these women is if they happen to be assaulted in another magistrate's jurisdiction, those reports would never get back to our primary magistrate. They didn't share notes back in the day. There was too much pride on the line. And... A lot of magistrates wouldn't believe the description of Martin when it came to these attacks. They thought, look, you're describing an ogre from a fairy tale. You're ridiculous. Get out of here. You know, he's not a real-life villain. He's something you created in your mind. The lack of sharing notes would really prove to hamper the magistrate and the police's case against Martin. Eventually, Martin made a terrible error. He assaulted a woman, but allowed her, allowed her to escape. Not the first time we've heard that song, right? What's unfortunate about this from his perspective was the location. It was way, way too close to his house. And for whatever reason, it was this assault where everything kind of fell into place for the magistrate. Martin had kind of become a suspect because of his description, but now to have an assault so close to home, it couldn't be ignored. So as soon as the magistrate hears of this assault, he sends basically an army of police officers out to Martin's cottage and surrounds it until he can get a formal arrest warrant. He goes out there with it, and both Martin and his wife were arrested and taken into custody. Now, when authorities searched their house, they were shocked at what was inside. 
not in an Ed Gein sort of way, but still very disturbing, very shocking, okay? The interior of this cottage was just barely managed chaos. It was a hoarder's house. Every square inch of the home was covered in piles of clothing, some of which went up to the ceiling. The only parts that were not covered were these little thin paths that led from room to room so they could walk through the house. When they, the authorities surveyed the scene, they said, this, we, we, there's no way we can inventory all this. This is madness. But, you know, they had to make the impossible possible. At this point in time, police were only aware of one murder, and that was Martin's first that we mentioned. And, of course, they were aware of multiple robberies and assaults. But once they started going through the clothing, their opinion of Martin and what he was capable of changed radically. Now, at first blush, these piles of clothes seemed to be just randomly distributed. But once they started inventorying them, they found that there was some logic behind the way they were stacked. Most of the piles, at least most of the piles that were visible along the thin paths, contained clothing that was in good condition that Martin and Marie Ann had not had a chance to sell yet. They were clean, they weren't damaged, they were generally folded nicely, they were ready to go, okay? Now, behind these piles, there would be kind of a second pile, second type of pile. These piles contained the clothing that were ripped or dirty, but that Marie Ann thought she could save, Then we had the centermost piles. I'm viewing this kind of as a circle. You know, the outside ring were the clothes they were going to sell. The middle ring were the clothes that could be sold with some work. The inner ring, the ones that are hardest to get to, it was clothing that was stained with blood and torn through obvious brute force. These were the nightmare piles. I mean, they just told a story of violence and death. Police also found, as they worked their way through the piles, there would just be little stacks of jewelry or heirlooms or items that were so unique they would be difficult to sell. While they were inventorying the house, which this was the most problematic task in the investigation, the other police who did not have to do this laborious work had a challenge of their own. They didn't really know what to charge Martin and Marie Ann with. At this time, you know, really to secure a conviction, there's no forensics, of course, whatsoever during this time period. And so they relied a lot on confessions, witness statements, or bodies. And without the some of these three things, it just you did not get a murder conviction. That's just how it worked. So they decided that okay, well we got to get a confession from these two. 
That's what we're going to work on first. So they come in guns a-blazing, and Martin literally does not say a word. He totally shuts down. He goes back to his mute, feral state, doesn't talk to the cops. They threaten him. They try to sweet-talk him. Nothing works. He is silent. But Marie Ann was a different story. And it's kind of sad in a way because as much as Martin loved her, she was as quick as she could to throw him under the bus. Everything was his fault. She said anything and everything she could think of that would place blame for all of this on Martin. And it didn't have the effect she intended. Because she was so zealous in trying to blame Martin for all this, the magistrate and some of the lead detectives said, you know, me think she doth protest too much here. You know, they started thinking that she was really involved a whole lot more than they initially thought. In fact, the magistrate was of the opinion that she was the ringleader, she was the brains behind this operation, and Martin just did her bidding. Once word of Martin's arrest began to circulate through the local villages, all of a sudden the floodgates opened as far as people who are willing to testify. Despite all the meticulous planning that went into these operations, Martin was kind of a creature of habit. He tended to, whenever he went to a village or a town where he was going to stage an attack from, he liked to eat at the same restaurants. He liked to stay at the same inns. And there were more than one occasion where these visits, he would be accompanied by a young woman. And when they were having their meal or when they went to bed... And he always got two rooms, nothing suspicious about it. There would be occasions where the girl would run away and Martin would give chase. And that was never a good look and it would stick in the mind of the restaurant or the inn's proprietor. So that was helpful testimony, but again, we don't have any direct evidence linking Martin to any murders. So then one of the police officers had this idea and the magistrate loved it. He said, let's take some of this clothing and let's allow the public to go through it. Let's see if they can't identify who owned some of these items. You know, if you've got a missing sister or you've got a missing daughter, and you find her dressed in this pile, a pile that was found in Martin's house, that starts to create some pretty good circumstantial evidence to support an idea that something bad happened to her and Martin was involved. And this was a very successful idea that police learned of many new victims that they had no idea existed. And again, we've slowly got new connections being made between Martin and his crimes. A few of the folks who had survived, but who had hesitated to come to the police initially, when the whole clothing idea was put out in the public, 
these victims were willing to come in and talk to the police. And at this point, the police were like, if you saw the man, could you identify him? And inevitably, they all said, yes, of course. He was so unique looking. Despite the memory lapses we heard from several of the victims earlier on. And they would take him to Martin's cell and they would see him and they were like, yep, that's the dude who attacked us. He's the monster. Eventually, and I think what happened, this is me speculating a little bit. I think Martin learned that Marie Ann was trying to save her own skin. And Martin being Martin went along with that plan because suddenly out of nowhere, he started talking and he wasn't just talking. He was vomiting out confessions. He even talked police into letting him show them where he had buried some bodies. And so they went along with it and in shackles, he went out into the woods and at first, police thought this guy's jerking us around. He's just seeing how long we'll put up with him because there's no way anybody would be buried this far out in the woods. Well, Martin goes and goes and goes, and then he comes to a very, very small clearing in the woods, one that most people wouldn't really even call a clearing. And he said, all right, there you go. Dig right here. And they dug down, found a body. Did this three times. And of course, this links Martin directly to three murders. Police were kind of surprised that Martin did this, of course, because it's totally against his best interests. Also surprised he never tried to make a run for it. They knew his reputation for how well he operated in the woods, and they that's why they were so hesitant to agree to this idea. But he never made one move suggesting he was going to run away. He just kind of rolled with the punches. Doctors were called in to examine the dead bodies and kind of horrified to learn that these women weren't totally dead when they were buried. Uh, they were buried alive based on the evidence they found. And once word of this started to spread. You know, townsfolks originally said, Martin? Really? I mean, he's so dumb. And he's just this poor, henpicked man. And then they started to realize what a monster he was in disguise. And so the rumors go completely in the opposite direction, you know? I heard Martin was a cannibal. Really? I heard he was a necrophile. No, no, no. He likes to drink the blood of his victims. Yeah, that's because he's a Satanist. Naturally, there's no evidence to support any of these sorts of claims. But that didn't stop people from believing that basically anything was possible when it came from Martin. And in fact, some of the sources I cite in the show notes still continue to claim that he was a blood drinker or a cannibal or whatnot. Now... At one point during all this, a body was found by some hunters. It was not one that Martin had shown the police. And when the body was found, she was dug up. 
and she had been killed in a manner similar to the three victims Martin had had identified. And so they approached Martin and they said, did you kill this woman? And for whatever reason, Martin just becomes furious at this accusation. He just adamantly denied committing this murder. And he had such resolve behind his claims and his assertions that police were kind of taken aback. I mean, this was the same dude that took them to burial sites. Why was he denying this one so fiercely? They eventually kind of believe that Martin must not have done this one because it just doesn't make any sense for him to quickly confess to three murders and then just be insulted at the idea that he murdered this fourth woman. Eventually, the investigation concluded. Police only had enough evidence to feel comfortable charging Martin for the three murders he connected himself to, and then about a dozen assaults. Now, privately, the magistrate was really frustrated because... With the work of him and his detectives, he felt like he could connect Martin to many other cases of missing women. How many, you ask? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. The magistrate claimed that he could connect Martin to 648 additional cases of missing women. 648 potential murder victims. But there was no evidence that he could present in a court of law to support a conviction for these 648 murders. There was another oddity that the magistrate never really got an answer to, and it bothered him for the rest of his days. There was a four-year period where no women were reported missing. Even if you don't have a Martin in your life during this time period, this is unheard of. Again, women would get frustrated with their lives and look for better opportunities in other cities. Sometimes they would do this without telling their family, and they would be reported as missing because of that. But for four years, at least in the area Martin was operating in, not a single missing person's case was reported. If the magistrate had found a way to charge Martin with all of these murders, there is no doubt he would have been considered the greatest monster in the history of France. But on the flip side of this coin, it's doubtful that Martin would have been charged with any murders had he not been so cooperative with police. Now, with going back to Marie Anne, we've got a different story unfolding. She was deflecting everything at her husband, and her husband would not refute anything she said. In fact, he would change his story to match hers. And there was no evidence tying her to any of the murders other than the mounds of clothing. Her position was, look, I didn't know what Martin was up to. And whenever I would try to ask, he'd get really angry. 
He would hit me. And I just lived in fear of this man. Now, the magistrate did not believe her, but he was fairly certain that once the jury heard about Martin's crimes, they would be very apt to believe that Marie Ann was terrified of him. But they did find some evidence linking Marie Ann to some of, this, some of these crimes. It was mostly circumstantial, but several neighbors testified that Marie Ann would never answer her door, even for Martin, unless Martin approached the door and yelled out a code word, a password. Whenever he did that, she would come outside to greet him, and they would go in the cottage together. There was also the problem in that Marie was so eager to talk, she started talking about crimes police had not discovered yet. And so she started implicating herself in her mad dash to implicate Martin. There are two items that were found when police inventoried the couple's house that we haven't talked about. And it was two things the police didn't want to talk about. They found two outfits clearly made for two young boys. The outfits were neither bloodied nor damaged in any way, but everyone who saw them instantly grew cold. In fact, police never bothered to ask Martin about these two outfits because they really didn't want to know the answer to that question. In January of 1862, Martin and Marie Ann faced trial together. And as you probably can imagine, this was a circus of an event. You had over 5,000 people, okay? 5,000 people crammed into the courtroom to watch the proceedings. Some unreported number waited outside in the streets, hoping just to catch a whiff of some news regarding what was going on inside. When Martin was brought into the courtroom, it kind of erupted into whispers and people frantically pointing. They were bug-eyed. They were shocked. There he is. There he is. Oh, my gosh. Shockingly, Martin kind of paraded into the center of the courtroom, took his hat off of the flourish, and said in a jolly tone, Yes! Here I am. He, he acted like he was watching a play during the trial rather than having his life hanging in the balance. Now, Marie Ann, who was seated at the same table but at the opposite end, was the exact opposite of Martin. She could not look more grim. I mean, her eyes were sunken. She just stared at the floor. She never made eye contact with anybody, including Martin. The court convened a jury of 36 men to hear the case. They were all from villages that Martin had committed crimes in. When proceedings began, the prosecution called 69 witnesses to testify against Martin. Martin's attorney was a well-respected man, but he had nothing to work with. He literally cross-examined almost none of these witnesses 
because he had no defense. Martin was telling him and instructed him to use as his defense that Martin was working for two men who threatened the life of his wife if he did not carry out these horrible acts. Now, Martin didn't know who these two men were. He couldn't explain how they would meet. He couldn't explain what their interest was in these crimes. But that was his story. Obviously, Martin was very inconsistent in how he told it. No one believed a word of it, even his attorney. One day during trial, one of the doctors who had inspected the bodies testified in pretty gruesome detail about the condition of the body he had inspected. After he testified, the judge said, okay, we're going to recess for lunch. While the jury's gathering their things and getting ready to head out for their lunch meal, Martin, like a wild man, digs into his pockets and pulls out some bread and some cheese and just starts devouring it like a wild animal. And people were aghast. They could not believe he had such a huge appetite after hearing such disgusting testimony. Now, Marie Ann, when she testified, she continued to sing the song that Martin did all this work alone. She wasn't allowed to ask him any questions. She basically described herself as a prisoner of this marriage. And she managed to win a great deal of sympathy with the jury because she really was a skilled storyteller. And so she could weave a yarn people would believe. After all the evidence or after all the testimony was given, the prosecution introduced the physical evidence they have. And they brought in trunk after trunk after trunk. And they pulled out just the clothing they could connect to the specific victims that Martin and Marianne were on trial for. The records claim that the prosecution identified 70 handkerchiefs, 57 pairs of stockings, 28 scarves, 38 caps, 10 corsets, and a massively wide variety of other items. The prosecution also showed to the court all the other items of clothing that they could not match with an owner. This was not, and no inventory was ever submitted to court, but from the reports, It was an unimaginably massive heap of clothes. Okay, we've had 69 witnesses testify for the prosecution. We've had Martin testify, Marie Ann testify. We've had all this physical evidence introduced painstakingly. Guess how long this trial actually lasted? Four days. It only lasted four days because neither Martin nor Marie Ann really had a defense. When it was time for closing arguments, the prosecution, led by the magistrate himself, asked the court to impose the death penalty on both husband and wife. 
pointing to the horrific acts that were committed and the brutality with which they were carried through. Martin's attorney, again, he had nothing to work with. So the only thing he knew to do was to try to pull on the jury's heartstrings. And so what he did was he focused on Martin's horrible childhood and how society had kind of forced him to develop this feral skill set. It was reported that Martin's counsel actually asked the jury, are you really surprised that when a dog is left in a feral state that it should bite anyone who gets too close? Marie Ann's counsel went last, and his argument was what you would expect. She was a frail woman, a loving wife, who was subjected to the oppressive nature of this monster of a husband. And, of course, as a woman, she lacked the capacity to plan and devise such a well-orchestrated and wide-ranging crime spree. While the jury deliberated... Martin chatted with anyone and everyone who approached. It was as if he was the host of this grand party. And lots of people did approach. I mean, they wanted to be able to say that they had shook hands with Martin because he had become a celebrity. Obviously not a positive celebrity, but nonetheless. Um, he, he was very infamous, and people wanted to have the thrill of being able to tell their friends, oh yeah, I met him, I shook his hand. Meanwhile, Marie Ann, she did her best to shrink into the corner of that courtroom and not be seen by anybody. Jerry was out for a total of three hours. A total of 84 charges had been brought against the pair, and they were found guilty on 67 of them, including all the major charges. Now, I don't know specifically what they were charged with, what all 84 charges were. It sounds like you've got the three murders, 12 assaults, and then a scattering of minor crimes beyond that. The judge announced that based on the jury's verdict and the jury's findings, he had no choice but to condemn Martin to death. As for Marie Ann, the judge said he felt like he had more latitude based on the jury's specific findings, and he would show her some mercy. She was sentenced to serve a mere 20 years of hard labor. Now, in reality, this was a death sentence, too. But it avoided the problem of sparking a debate about whether or not women should be subjected to the death sentence. Remember, this was taking place during the Age of Enlightenment, if you remember that from high school. And so lots of social issues were being very hotly debated, including the death penalty. Now, it was widely reported that even people who were opposed to the death penalty said, well, as long as we got it, we got to use it on Martin. But using it on his wife probably would have been a step too far. This was the only time that Martin lost his composure when he heard his sentence. He seemed shocked, and for several long moments, he just seemed to wrestle with the idea that his life was now forfeit. When the jailers came to lead him away, though, he kind of regained his senses and walked with confidence out of the courtroom. 
Jailers claimed that the that night when Martin went to sleep, it was the first night they had seen him sleep peacefully. It was as if all the anxiety from the Scran show was over. He didn't have anything to worry about. His future was certain. He didn't have to worry about scrounging for food or securing a job or even trying to make Marie Ann happy. He could just rest. Marie Ann, of course, had the exact opposite reaction. Jailers reported that she spent most of that night just hysterically sobbing. Local priests tried to meet with Martin regularly. They wanted him to try to make peace with God. And alternatively, they also kind of wanted him to confess to as many crimes as possible so the history books would show him for the monster they believed him to be. But Martin never was interested in that talk. Whenever they would bring up the Bible or God or Jesus, he would push that talk aside. He'd say, okay, look, you're here. I need you to help me make sure I got all my fares are in order. Because when Marie Ann gets out, I want her to be able to inherit my estate. And I want her, please, you know, pass along this message. She needs to move somewhere far away where she won't be hassled. She should have enough money to live off of if she's careful. He really only wanted to talk about Marie Ann's future. On March 17th, so this was about two months after the trial had begun, Martin was set to be executed. Emperor Napoleon III personally signed the death warrant. In his final conversation with his attorney, he was asked how he felt about the guillotine. And Martin said, hey, it's probably a better death than being ripped apart by horses. He was provided with the customary last meal, and it was a massive meal. Some said it would feed three to five men. He ate every bit of it. He was allowed to pick uh, what he would wear to his execution from his personal belongings. He intentionally picked the outfit in the worst condition so that his wife could sell the remainder of his clothing so she could have a little bit more pocket change when she was finally set free. So after all this occurred, he was marched out to a carriage, which was going to take him to the location where his sentence would be carried out. As soon as he hit the outdoors, he instantly started complaining about being cold. Having gotten to know Martin over these few weeks, one of the jailers had anticipated this and brought a blanket, which he wrapped around Martin's shoulders. During the carriage ride, Martin spoke in a friendly manner with the jailers and the priests who accompanied him, and he would even point out random spots of interest to him as they went along. You know, he'd say, oh, that over there, there's a great fishing spot over there if you've ever got the time. Or look, if you go up this hill, if you ever want to catch rabbits, this hill, you can set a couple snares and you will be set. The priests who accompany him would later say that they had never been with such a cheerful man on the way to his execution. The road to his spot of execution was lined with just people who wanted to glimpse Martin. They had heard the rumors, and they wanted to see what a monster really looked like. 
When the carriage finally arrived at the guillotine, Martin boldly walked out of the carriage. He was asked to get on a horse to carry him the final few hundred yards. He refused. He said he wanted to walk like a man to face his, to face his fate. But in his walk, he faltered and fell to his knee and began sobbing. But it lasted for just a moment. He literally sobbed once, then immediately straightened himself and carried on as if nothing had happened. Now, the town square was packed with onlookers. Literally, people are sitting on roofs. They are hanging out of windows just to glimpse Martin. They wanted to see his final chapter come to a close. Martin gets to the makeshift stand they've built for this occasion, and he's shackled, of course, and so as he's going up the stairs, he stumbles. And surprisingly, both a priest and the executioner gently help him up with a lot of respect and kindness. And Martin thanked them both graciously. When he got on the platform, he paused, uh, turned to the jailer who had given him the blanket and, you know, said, you know, please take this back. You need this more than I do. A priest leaned in to whisper something in Martin's ears and Martin just embraced him as best he could and thanked him for being with them and for saying prayers for him. Martin was strapped down to a really heavy board and then slid underneath this huge blade. The last words that escaped his lips were Murray. When it was done, his body was quickly boxed up and sent to be buried in an undisclosed location. His head, however, was sent to a medical university in Lyon to examine it to see if they could learn anything about his unusually violent conduct. Martin was such a well-known criminal in the, at this time that he's actually memorialized in passing, but nevertheless, he made it into Victor Hughes' famous Les Miserables. And surprisingly, Martin kind of became like a rallying cry. Again, Age of Enlightenment, people are discussing social issues a lot, and he's this poster child for this is what happens when you don't take care of people in your society. You know, his actions were blamed on society's failure to care. Total opposite of what was presented in trial. Total opposite of the evidence the magistrate had collected. But that was the rallying cry of these philosophers and other enlightened men. But this campaign fell on deaf ears. Government never did anything with it. Now, Martin holds a unique distinction among modern criminologists. He is considered to be, chronologically, the first known serial killer in Western Europe. The very first one. So, can, can we say he pioneered this industry? Now, as for Marie Anne, she did not adapt to prison life well, as you would expect. When she was sentenced to hard labor, she was truly sentenced to hard labor, and she was not ready for this. Uh, the conditions were very poor. She suffered from many illnesses, many sicknesses, 
her body quickly degenerated, and in 1875, she finally passed away from a combination of all the sicknesses and just pure exhaustion. Well, that's Martin's story. I find it really interesting. He was such a simple man with such simple goals. All he wanted to do was survive. That's all that mattered to him. When he was given a job, he was an ideal employee. He never complained. He literally worked through every illness and injury he had. And just think, if he had never married, he likely would have been forgotten to history. He just had such few desires in life that he would have been happy living in squalor as a hermit out in the woods. But his attitude towards life seemed to shift dramatically once he married Marie Ann. It was as if, you know, not only do I have to survive, now I have to make sure she survives. Just like when he was a toddler and he had to take care of his mother. And he stayed forever devoted to this woman. He would make any effort just to see her smile. It's almost romantic in a way. It's sad that she was so materialistic. Again, if they were happy with a modest lifestyle, they fade into history and we're talking about something else today. Now, by the same token, it is striking to see Martin show no remorse for his crimes. And I believe that he truly had no remorse. He did what he did to try to give Marie Anne the best life he could. Rules and laws be damned, right? And she enjoyed the fruits of his labor. And she demanded the most out of life. Um, you know, part of me wants to lay a lot of the blame at Marie Anne's feet. But... Then you have to remember, Martin carried out these crimes without any hesitation. And the numbers are shocking. They're staggering. The idea that one man could be responsible for 650 murders, that's incredible. I mean, that is, that's incredible. It also shows how little value commoners received in the 1800s. In today's world, if you have four or five women go missing from the same rough geographic area, you are going to have law enforcement agencies, you know, from the local police force all the way to the FBI, swarming on this area, doing a huge investigation, figuring out what was going on. Here we have Hundreds of people missing. Hundreds. And no one bats an eye. We often view olden times through, you know, a romantic lens, through rose-colored glasses, right? But the reality tends to be horrific. I mean, my God, can you imagine living in a world like this? We, we like to think of these 1800s and, you know, all the improvements that are being made, all these great philosophical debates. And that's fine and dandy if you're part of the 1%. If you're the rest of the population, it's drudgery and no one cares about you. 
you know, I don't really have much to offer from a legal point of view. This this one just is what it is. It's sad and it's brutal. Martin was just kind of this tool who could be used to complete any job. No questions asked, it seems. And I would be really curious to hear a criminologist or a psychologist talk about Martin's condition or his perspective on life. I, I think that would be very interesting. Well, now we can't have an episode of KMH, of course, without our palate cleanser. And as you know, Mr. Eli's always going to try to tie his joke to our theme. So here's what we've got today. What do French fries do when they meet? What do French fries do when they meet? They catch up, of course. So, well done, right? I didn't know how he was going to pull this one off. Kudos. Kudos to my young man there. Now, if you follow us on any social media, you may have seen this, but I have one quick announcement. I am looking for a loyal listener who may be interested in kind of co-starring in a new podcast I'm interested in giving a shot. You'll need to be an adventurous soul. It's not, you know, you're not traveling the world or anything like that. And you need to have the time to commit to recording 10 episodes with us. It can be remote. You don't have to come to my house. I'd love to have you. But if you're living, you know, out in Wyoming, it's probably not easy for you to get down to Alabama, right? Um, you don't have to be in the United States. You can be anywhere. I just want you to, you know, I, I just want someone who is willing to try new things and willing to record, show up for 10 episodes. So, you know, if you've ever wanted to be on a podcast, if you're interested in starting your own podcast but don't want to invest in it, you just want to give it a go. Or if you just like taking on mysterious challenges, give me a shout. Look, this isn't going to cost you anything um, other than a little time each week. It's nothing hard. It's just a neat idea that we've come up with that we need a third person for. And it's not going to be anything weird, you know. I'm a wuss, okay? I admit that freely. I'm a wuss, and I would consider doing this. But it was not going to work for the format of the show I have in mind. So if I'm willing to do it without being scared, y'all should be fine. But if you're interested, give me a shout, please. So that's going to do it for today. Please remember, leave us all the awesome five-star reviews you can. I need these constant affirmations to get through my day. I mean, you are getting a lot of edutainment for free, right? Okay, look, I'm sorry. I hate that word, too. Please don't dock me any stars for saying edutainment. Um, you know, as always, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all those fun places. Please try to share us. I'd focus on your weirdest friends because we seem to resonate the most with weird people. And I love y'all for it. Um, okay, so until we meet again, I wish you nothing but a restful night's sleep, quality television shows that you find, that you love to binge, and of course, all the cookies you can eat. Brad out. 
survived another episode of Kindness and Hidden, the podcast about bad things. Join us next time for another true and thrilling story.